Hello, everybody. I can't believe you're back again. It's very lovely to see you. We're on episode eight already. Um, we're going to the end of the week. And today we were talking about promoting population mental health. So I will introduce you to the panel in just one second. Um, first of all, just to remind you, if you are joining us um, and you want to um, join in, comment, critique, anything like that, we love that, especially questions. If you are, want to go to watch us on Facebook Live, um, it's the Unite Mental Health Association's page, um, and you absolutely just comment away at the bottom. Um, also, if you're following on Twitter or you want to make any comments on Twitter, we'll collect information there as well and feed that back to the panel. And that's hashtag MHNR2020. So please join in. Um, you're making this conference and we're really, really appreciating it. Don't forget as well, if you're really interested in the things that the panel is saying, um, follow the links and you'll see their videos. So the way this is working is that everybody's done a video talking about the work they've done. And tonight we're going to just be... Um, yeah, talking about some of the themes and, and interesting bits that have come out of that work. So I'm going to introduce you to the panel now and we'll go around one by one. Um, can I ask you, Lai, to say hello and tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Lai Chan. I work in Edge Hill University. I'm one of the um, lecturers there, I'm an associate head. Um, my background is I'm a nurse, I'm general and mental health trained. Um, I've worked in the community for a while. My research um, is all mainly around the academia teaching staff and, and the way they are you know, working in, in a very stressful environment, but also looking at their personal attributes and how they help them to cope with that. Brilliant. That's me. Uh, yeah. Peggy, can we come to you? Yeah, hello everyone. My name is Peggy Molongo. I'm a lecturer in mental health nursing and practice at Yukon. And uh, I'm also a registered mental health nurse uh, with expertise in cross-cultural mental health. And uh, my research that um, uh, I'm bringing my contribution to this conference today is about exploring aspects of acculturation which uh, could enhance the mental health of young refugees uh, who were settled here in the UK under the humanitarian program. Thank you very much. And, and Charlotte and Steve, so Charlotte, can I come to you first? Yes, hello, I'm Charlotte Pierce. I'm a lecturer at the University of Cumbria um, in mental health nursing. Um, and a little bit about myself. Um, I'm also a mental health first aider, um, qualified instructor with um, Mental Health First Aid England. Um, and I really like tea, <laughs> cups of tea. <laughs> I've got one right here. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Steve? Uh, good evening, everyone. Yeah, uh, my name is Steve McCarthy Grunwald. I'm uh, I work with Charlotte at the University of Cumbria, and I'm the pathway lead for the mental health nursing branch. Um, my interests cover various elements such as humour, but uh, tonight, myself and Charlotte are here to share some of the work that we've been doing on a festival of mental health over the last couple of years. Fabulous. So I'll just hand over now to Mick, who's going to introduce himself and then um, lead the panel discussion. Fantastic. And when I'm looking down, it's because I'm tweeting and things. So please don't think I'm ignoring you. Hi, everybody. It's, it's great to see you again. And, and for, for everyone who's been following this all the way through, if anyone's new to, to the, the conference online, my name is Mick McLeod. I'm a professor of democratic mental health at the University of Central Lancashire. So, so Peggy's a colleague of mine. But I know a lot of the other people on the panel tonight, which is, which is really good. So I want to start... Um, in the order that everyone's been introduced. So I want to start with Lai first. And and what I liked about your work, Lai, is, 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 you know, it's obviously a very good piece of work and it's it's a, it's a really important topic in terms of stress in the workplace, but also made me feel better that I'm not the only one who thinks that things have gone bonkers in academia in terms of increased workload and the place turning into a sausage factory. So tell us more about the stress on academics. It's a combination, isn't it? I think what's been coming through and from, um, you know, the last 10 years, I think with technology as well, you know, we are moving in a fast pace, aren't we? In, and and the way we deliver teaching and learning, it's also very different from, if you think about how technology has supported the changes. Um, the demand obviously is to do with the research, you know, REF, and also the test that's come out. And um, we, we all have to be seen doing the best for our students. And I think also, I think the changes with the tuition fee has also maybe changed some of the attitudes that um, we notice from students. And maybe that has made people have a different mindset. So, you know, a combination of that really, isn't it? And also the 
least number in- of um, students. <laughs> yeah. So you, you introduce an idea of mental toughness. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, mental toughness concept has been around for 20 years. I've used that. Mo- the model came from um, Clough and, you know, Ital. They looked at it much more, very much as that um, personal um construct rather than saying you know um so it's that attribute rather than say it's to do with slightly different than so than mixture so i want to look at more than rather than using resilience and i think um it's interesting i think mental toughness has been um, researched around in um as you all know in athletes um in business there's some in education, medicine, and definitely in military now. And so there's, if you look at some of the research papers, there's been some mental toughness, but it's not been, um, I wouldn't say it's finished because there's a lot more to be done really. Um, and um, as a model and its construct, I think there's some flexibility. So this is where I'm thinking, I'm not sticking with what um, Clough um, model. I think I've come up with some, couple of new um, components, if you like, in my findings. Yeah, which, which is quite appealing, isn't it? So I, I yeah. tuned into the idea that one of the, at least a couple of the things that are good for people in terms of maintaining their sanity in work is the care and compassion that colleagues show to each other and the support that people might get from, from their work network and, and wider networks. So I'm, I'm not going to ask you to comment on that now, but maybe we'll come back to that later but i want to move around go on i want to say compassionate to students as well because that's what they also it's not just you know for themselves it's to others brilliant i've got a little joke about that remind me to bring come back to it later so peggy um we've been a bit late getting your video online for various reasons so maybe you could tell us in a little bit more detail what what your study was about okay um this is a study that was part of my uh, PhD research. Uh, so it is uh, based on a particular group of refugee, young refugees, um, we are, which are part of the humanitarian resettlement program. The, the UK has, a, has practically signed an agreement with the United, United Nations, UNHCR, uh, for High Commissioner for Refugees. And it is about um, having the quota each year to receive a particular group of uh, refugee families uh, who are very, very sensitive and vulnerable living in refugee camps in a second country. So they, they'll be able to move into the UK and then they'll be part of that program called the Gateway Protection Program. And uh, under that program, they will be having like one year, 12 months, resettlement process and then they'll be supposed to be ready to join the wider community. So why I chose this uh, particular uh, piece of research, um, I've just noticed that uh, myself personally, I've been working part of the Gateway Protection Program for many years, um, providing emotional support to the families. But while providing emotional support to the families, I quickly noticed that young people didn't have any voice and uh, even part of the plans that we are doing, uh, part of the local authority I was working in, young people's voices were not really included. So by supporting them emotionally, quickly I found out that um, the needs in terms of mental distress uh, were not addressed. And uh, even though if they were attending schools, their needs were just mixed with uh, those of other refugee or migrant uh, population while they are coming from a particular uh, part of the world and they've been experiencing lots of trauma previous settlement. So uh, the problem is there, there's gap in, uh, in, uh, in the studies, mainly because nobody knows them. So you probably know the, the term of asylum seekers, uh, you probably know the terms refugees in general or migrants or any other term, but I don't think that most of you have ever heard about the gateway refugees. Who are they? What are their needs? Where are they coming from? And what is the process for them to get here in the UK? So, so many questions with no answers that led to 
me uh, working mainly with the young people in this particular program. So thanks, Peggy. That's that's fantastic. And I, I suppose we do all know now about the gateway refugees. I, I was listening to something the other day about you know, the, the bomb that went off, not the bomb, the, the explosion that happened in the port in Lebanon and how some of the most disadvantaged people in relation to the consequences of that were the, the long-term refugees in Lebanon who've come from all over the place to do with unrest in the Middle East. And some of them have been there 40 years in, in camps. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I think the, the similar picture across all parts of the world, in, including many places where, where our country and the Americans have gone to war and then displaced people across borders and everything. So, so I think there's some interesting politics here that we might come back to. But the question I want to ask you, Peggy, is about um, asylum and mental health. And I, I think I, I wonder whether there's a neat little resonance between the sort of asylum that someone who's who's displaced across national boundaries might seek and the sort of asylum or sanctuary that people might seek in terms of mental health care and support. Would you have anything to say about that? Yeah, um, talking about mental health and asylum here within the UK, uh, having worked again, because this is, these are my, uh, the main population I've been working with uh, in the last 15 years, asylum seekers and refugees mainly. So there's a lot of barriers and loads of needs, uh, most of the time overlooked um, because either the mental health system or policies here, although in, on paper it is written that they are they need to be looked after, but in reality and in practice, there's lots of um, lack of awareness, lack of cultural competencies. And also when we talk about asylum particularly, and the asylum process, there are a lot of limitations already in terms of the asylum policies for what um, asylum seeker families can uh, are, um, are allowed to have, as for example, in terms of health. There's lots of limitations and barriers in terms of accessing mental health uh, services, particularly early prevention, I would say. There's a massive gap in terms of early prevention uh, in mental health for uh, asylum seekers and refugees. That's why most of the work are done mainly and within third sector organizations who will be developing uh, different projects to look at after asylum seeker families and refugees. It seems to me that some of the problem lies in the way politicians and others talk about some of these groups and it just, just as there's a sort of maybe a resonance between different notions of asylum, I think the way in which people who are seen to be different, whether it's people who have mental health problems or, or people who, who are subject to migration, are demonised. They're not just celebrated for difference in, in ways that we could positively, but become sort of demonised and demigrated and treated as, as other and alien from... I think, uh, Mick, if I need to comment there, it's, uh, it's such a huge topic and every single folder that you are opening uh, will be like with no end. And uh, the media didn't help at all. Uh, and uh, when, when you are working directly with those different uh, people, for me, I would say they are all individuals under different levels. But at the end of the day, as a mental health practitioner, for me, they are all special because we need to look at person-centered care. So we don't need to look at the status, we don't need to look at the stigma or whatever. So we are health professionals as part of the NMC code of conduct. We need to look after uh, everybody regardless of uh, origin or being equal. So it's, it's, it's massive in terms of stigma, in terms of how they are portrayed, in terms of how we interpret um, mental health issues, in terms of the policies and the politics uh, sometimes that we receive as well part of our profession. Uh, sometimes immigration would say that be careful uh, because sometimes they might be too demanding. So willing it or not, it will be influencing your work or your way of your judgment really. And instead of being non-judgmental, you will end into is, this, is that person saying the truth or not? So there's so many uh, parameters that um, are coming when we start talking about refugees, asylum seekers, starting from the different uh, terminologies. It's so, 
So I, I, we may come back to some of this this later, Peggy. Um, I, I'm really interested in whether some government policies are at all compatible with um, what we say are our values as nurses. But I'll, I'll let that rest for now. And I, I want to come to, to Charlotte and Steve's Festival of Mental Health. And I think this is an absolutely brilliant idea. Um, and there's so many good things about it, but one of the things I liked the most about it was how you capitalised upon students studying different subjects to actually um, use their skills and talents to to make artistic expression for the for the purpose of this mental health festival that that didn't just face your own students; it faced the public and people who use services as well. So, tell us a bit more about it and, and what you like about it. I'm waiting for Charlotte, but I'll, I'll go first then. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I suppose the uh, the festival itself, the, the whole idea was to give something back to the community and to the university as a whole. Um, we, we see mental health as one of those stigmas still where people are afraid to talk about it. It is getting better, but we're still not there. So we wanted to do something which helps to raise the profile of mental health to look at ways at which people can engage in maintaining their own well-being as well and to approach it more from the creative side of uh, uh, our psyches as well. So looking at things like the creative arts of uh, painting, drawing, poetry, all the way through to dance and theatre, but also looking at a, a lifespan perspective. And uh, Charlotte's going to go on to kind of talk about some of the aspects where we brought in particular elements to suit all and cater for all ages as well. Yeah, yeah. So, um, like Steve said, we wanted to make it a lifespan approach. And certainly the first time we ran it, we ran it across two days um, on Lancaster campus at the University of Cumbria. And on the first day, it was sort of round targeted at young people and, and adults and, and the services that are on offer for, for surrounding mental health for them. Um, and we invited charities and agencies to come and network, which was really good because they got to know each other as well. So sort of different advocacy services and um, like Steve mentioned, creative creative arts um, and, you know, coming together to sort of share who they were and people left, different agencies left with different contacts of each other. So that was really good. And we had um, one of the things that I was... Um, what I really wanted to to make sure happened was that we invited local primary schools and, and the little ones to to come and join in as well. So some of our mental health nursing students actually supervised that, and we had sort of arts and crafts, but we also had little workshops. Um, not nothing nothing too deep, but you know just around um, recognizing stress and how important it is that we recognize things that are stressing us out. And I remember doing an exercise because I'm a big um, I'm a big advocate for language in mental health, and it sort of goes back to what Peggy and Lee were saying around mental toughness and that phrase mental toughness when you hear it you know what's the opposite of that if you're not mentally tough you know well, well are you mentally weak you know and, and and the same for resilience there's a lot of stuff going on with covid at the moment around lots of people pushing you know that we've got to be tough and we've got to be resilient but actually you know there's a pandemic like i think a lot of what people are experiencing is and this is arguable but a normal response to what's actually happening with their life and their livelihoods um, but getting the little ones involved was really interesting because mm. I did an exercise with them within the workshop that we held and it was getting them to write down any words that spring to mind um, when they think about the term mental health and 90% of their words were positive so really nice happy words you know um, but when I did the same exercise with adults a lot of their words were um things around diagnosis some neutral words like you know bipolar depression things that they knew but actually what it identified to me as an academic was the limited knowledge and understanding that they had and, and how much um, negative language was used by adults uh, when they heard the term mental health so that was just an interesting exercise really not not really a formal piece of research but um it's certainly something that i'd like to look into in the future around language and how that ties into stigma um uh, and 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 you know how all that links to resilience and um, and mental toughness and how we should how we should consider our mental health. Yeah. So we're going to bat some of that over to lie in a minute, but before we okay. do, what do you think of the proposition that some of our actual anti-stigma campaigns that are designed to reduce stigma actually contribute to some of this problem that, that you're talking about? Maybe because they consolidate notions of mental health associated with difficulties and deficit rather than strengths and 
and positives? I think campaigns are great and you know like the it's not okay it's okay not to be okay you know coming back to that that campaign and, and different hashtags like be kind that they're, they're all right but for me they're a bit superficial like they, they need to have people need to have the knowledge and understanding of what mental health really is about because a lot of people don't recognize when they're stressed a lot of people don't recognize the triggers for stress and they only recognize they've got a mental health problem or issue when it manifests as a physical problem and we know the links between physical health and mental health um, and there's a really great um, BBC program at the moment which I've forgotten the name of actually but there was a really good episode where they looked at um, some cases who've come through of people who um, have have manifestations um, written and, and doctors can't work out what it is but it always well a couple of cases came back to their mental health and their psychological um, health but you know I think there was a guy who was having a lot of seizures and um, and, it, and it came back to the emotional trigger in the brain um, and that um, manifesting um, as a physical health problem but when they worked it out you know they managed to get him some help and support and they stopped so yeah yeah so so I, 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 I watched that yeah yeah well they didn't stop but I think they're, they're definitely improving hmm. for him but maybe maybe one of the things is is about medicine as an overarching way of thinking about stuff what Foucault would call it a, a discourse or a meta-narrative this idea that if we frame you know mental unwellness in terms of mental illness hmm. it's actually in, in, in medical terms necessitates a separation of, of body and mind and that's when we start falling into into some of these traps yeah. and it's maybe why it's so surprising when when things are done differently but I think the, one I, the mm. thing I want to ask before we leave you for this this moment is does using creativity and artistic expression open up different ways of thinking about mental health that aren't always there on the on the sort of medical psychiatric canvas yeah, that, also, go on, that's okay. I was I was just going to uh, kind of draw a parallel to uh, COVID and the lockdown that we had, uh, and seeing how many people started to engage with the creative arts when they were looking for things to be a bit more sustainable themselves whilst being at home for longer periods of time. And it, I mean, it's culminated in an art show uh, being developed um, uh, and put broadcast live on the telly to try and look at how people can engage more with, uh, with art itself. So I think it's something that people almost naturally fell towards when they were looking at something that they could do. Uh, and it's it's kind of going back to your other point as well, Mick, about how some of the campaigns do sometimes try and capture this inclusivity for everybody. But sadly, sometimes they exclude too many people as well. And what I'm thinking about is a lot of the campaigns where you see exercise for mental health. And it's very clear that you can ride a bike, you can go for a walk, you can go for a run. But there's a lot of people who may struggle with energy, with fatigue, and therefore it's not always in their remit. But every single campaign or a lot of campaigns do feel to fall down that avenue of looking at physical health and physical exercise rather than all the other stuff that we can do, which can bolster our well-being. So, well, I'm right with you on all the other stuff. And maybe one of the deficits in our services is there isn't all that stuff, is there? Yeah. There's a... There's a a limited yeah. choice of things that that we offer people yeah. so let's come back to that later i want to back back to you lie with some of the stuff that came out of the earlier part of that discussion so mental toughness seems to me to be talking about strengths that people may may have to resist pressures and maybe oppressive working practices but is there a little bit of a problem with, with the language there lie in terms of well, I think that maybe the model, the model it's, you know, it's a model, isn't it, at the end of the day. And I think, you know, that the interpretation that some people call it psychological grit, you know, I think, have you got that um, a little bit, that hardness, that resilient or resistant to some of the um, the stress that you're, co you're covering? And I suppose it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because it doesn't, and this is where I think the compact, what I found out, you know, that they, they were actually being kind, to themselves and they were kind to others and, and they could understand 
and they had to really understanding where the students were coming from. You know, they they want that communication. Why they send emails, or they send in the wrong message if they reply to the email. You know, evening thinking that was okay, but then the stress of it all. So I think this is where I, I don't see that notion, that component in other um, authors talk about mental toughness, and that's that was new. I think the findings from my study was slightly different than the other. Um, if you like professions, yeah. Um, than well, it seems to me that what you're saying there, lie as well, is that there are different ways in which people can resist pressure and stress, and some of it might be being tough and standing up to it. I mean that metaphorically, and some of it might be being flexible and fluid and letting it fly past you and go over you and stuff like that. So, and that adaptability, isn't it? That's again, talk about adaptability, you know, because what, what these academics would talk about and what they found was the job can be quite lonely, you know, because you you have got that independence working and that flexibility, you know, how do you ensure you you, you get your prep right, make sure you, you also meet your, you know, your, your research, um, your own PDP really, isn't it? Your personal development. So but there's a lot. And how do you balance your home life? Yeah, I'm going to have a a bit of fun with you now, Lai. So one of my heroes in the world of work is is Homer Simpson. Oh, yes. It seems to me he doesn't get stressed in work, but he does work in a really stressful nuclear power plant. But part of the reason he doesn't get stressed is he doesn't care. He doesn't even care if the nuclear power plant goes into meltdown. He's more interested in his bevy after work and everything. So is there something in these jobs about if you care about it being done well, you're maybe a little bit more vulnerable to these stresses and pressures? I think that applies to all jobs, really, isn't it? Because we care, we want to do the best. And whether that's a little bit of that, you want to do the right thing, you don't want criticism. And you people do find that very difficult, don't they? Um, but at the same time, I think... You get you get the reward you get, and that reward doesn't have to be a physical one, does it? It's you feel like you've contribute, and all of us, you know, why we're teaching nursing is we want to put something back. Is think we want the future group. I'm not saying this group of academics that I'm doing the research on they're not from healthcare, so they're from different departments and um, different faculties. And again, they felt the same. They want to put something back for their students, and they can see the reward. You know, that was some of the things, and they are mature, some of them, um, and they can see the changes that's occurring in HEI. Um, so, so they don't have it as tough as the, as the nurse academics. They, they've got the summer off, have they, those people? No, they still do research. And you know, you know yourself, you know. Um, <laughs> don't we all have the summer we'll... off? No. All, all my neighbours think we get the whole summer off. <laughs> so this so is my thing. You say we all look really smooth and and calm. Is underneath we're all like paddling away. Okay, Nikki's given me a prompt that we're getting some questions coming through from from the wider audience. But I just want to ask Peggy something in this round, and then we'll come to to the general questions. So we've we've been talking about things like compassion and and creativity, and I was sort of barking up the tree earlier, Peggy, about how how it seems our national policies around migration seem to severely lack compassion but what about local communities how do you find that the the people you're working with are received and welcomed or or not into local communities i think in general it's all about education really uh when the local communities the more they know about um asylum immigration the more they are tolerant so what um part of our work apart from uh the supporting emotionally is about raising awareness, really. So in general, I would say uh, that the local communities are more tolerant and unless they are not educated. And But I won't be saying, I won't be saying 100%. There's still a lot, a lot that needs to be done and um, in, in different uh, levels. But the good thing, for example, we are seeing progress as well. Um, uh, when, if come back to month half and then we see how, for example, the NHS through the integrated care uh, model, they are looking at integrating different projects to embed, recognizing that there is a need to support these particular communities. 
And then uh, through this program as well, the campaigns, awareness, uh, going with it, it's contributing as well to raise awareness within uh, local communities. But I want to just add quickly something. When I'm hearing Charlotte or Lai talking about mental illness, for example, um, I quickly associated this with uh, this particular group of, of people. Um, they've, they've developed different forms of resilience uh, in response to the various struggles they encountered during their resettlement journey. So meaning that uh, easily we can uh, try and talk about mental toughness that they are developing in a certain way because they want, uh, they want to fight rather than fly, uh, fleeing. They, they are ready to fight in a certain way. And then when we talk about uh, recognition of mental health, um, how people are seeing it, part of the study, for example, I came across what um, the, con the contested concept of mental health. So what I would say, I would consider as maybe mental health, um, what I would consider is right for me, uh, the other community might see that it's wrong and then might think that I'm mentally ill and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So there's been quite a lot of exchange around the contested, um, around this type of um, a way of perceiving mental health. So it's more when you are physically ill, physically ill rather than anything else. So there's kind of lots of uh, uh, overlaps that we can apply as well with these communities uh, yeah. talking about mother. We love our contested concepts here. And it seems to me that the misunderstanding of different cultural express expressions of distress has been one of our big problems in, in psychiatric services for, for as, as long as I can remember and before that probably as well. Uh, so that's another one we could come back to, but let's turn to some of our audience's questions that, that Nikki's got for us. Absolutely, yeah. There's a lot of love, by the way. We've retweeted your um, article, Peggy, and um, people are really enjoying that. So thank you very much. Um, from Nikki Haley, all universities should incorporate a festival, so that's for Charlotte and Steve, especially at Freshers Weeks or before exam weeks. Um, and is there a link to it that people can see? You don't you mute it. Uh, it wouldn't let me unmute it then. Yes, there is, there is a link to the university website and uh, I can share that link to some of the previous festivals that we've had to give a flavour of uh, kind of what's included. But this was the idea back in 2018 when we started uh, myself and Charlotte saying, wouldn't it be fabulous if we had a national festival of mental health in every university each year? And that would be brilliant. It, it can be something that any university can get involved in. They can start looking at their local uh, needs and the local issues that they face as well, but then raise what they can do for those areas. So, uh, yes, I shall uh, fish out and share a link. Absolutely. So you can find that probably by by this by this very time tomorrow. I'm, I'm making a promise for Steve there. Tomorrow, <laughs> so if you yes. If follow the yes. hashtag, you'll find it. I, I think I heard Steve volunteer to, to spread it all around the country there as well. Uh, I would I would love to, yeah. <laughs> if people are interested, get in touch as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so Steve's um, Twitter is obviously being promoted as part of this. <laughs> Please follow him up. Let me know how you get on. <laughs> uh, we've got a question here from Adrian. So hello, Adrian. Um, how can we promote mental health in society? I guess this is one for everybody. Um, some communities within the UK first, second, even fifth generation still see um, mental ill health as family stigma. Um, I believe in, about talking in mental health, uh, that's the first barrier to break down stigma, but some communities are less open to it. What if you guys had any thoughts on that? I would say, you know, it's, it's the holistic approach, isn't it? Because again, as I would say, a lot of people don't see that the interconnection between, you know, if you look after your health well-being, that will also improve your mental health well-being. And it's that link, isn't it? And sometimes people don't see um, that they are, you know, started deteriorating psychologically, emotionally. And sometimes this is where externally your friends, your partners, external people may actually comment on it. And that might be, you know, a little bit that self-awareness might be limited about people not recognizing their mental health needs. I think that combination of holistic approach um, and this continuum really, isn't it? And mm. I think people forget, you know, mm. they, they are it's, as a whole, no health without mental health, as they say. They do say that. <laughs> Is there anybody else who wants to add to that or should I go on to another question? I would just like to put a plug in for sort of community level, neighbourhood level solidarity 
initiatives. And I think there's some evidence that people who are more active in their own communities, and it might be around the arts, it could be around faith groups, it could be around protest and campaigning, you, you name it, it could be around sport. Those people have at least marginally better health outcomes. And they're also much more likely to be involved. The people involved in some stuff are more likely to be involved in more stuff. So they're more civic animals. They, they're good for everybody else. And I think that the thing, the thing I'd like to see is how can we support more people to get more involved in this sort of thing? I'd like to add to that as well, Nick, if that's okay. Um, yeah. I think there's, on the one hand, building sort of like seeing society as a community, but also you, you can, you sort of make a start within your communities at university. So if you, you're at university, why not start something yourself? That's a little community there for you. Um, we're all neurologically different. We're all, we've all got, you know, we all learn differently. Some of us will struggle more than others at university. It's a, 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 for the mature students and also those still in adolescence joining university, you know, it's a transitional time. Um, it's worth you you taking it up with your universities, your organisations, your workplaces, and um, starting something yourselves and really bigging bigging this up, create creating mentally healthy communities. Basically, yeah. how about um, non-competitive universities? We don't grade people; we just learn together. Is that a heresy? <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who. who who are giving medication out that would like a medications check before the nursing students go out. <laughs> so I, I see what you mean about non-competitiveness. Well, I think well, if, we, if we do the learning properly, they, they will, you know, there's an argument that they will do this stuff. But if we teach them by exam, they may know it while they're doing the exam and then much yeah, later, that's absolutely true. Yeah. they don't know it. And in, in terms of virtuousness, it means that the staff have to do a lot less marking so that lies happy in a sausage factory <laughs> Workplace as well. <laughs> I feel like I'm falling down the rabbit hole of your brain again tonight, but I'm going to claw my way out and carry on asking questions. <laughs> so, uh, Peggy, there's a question here from a student nurse, year two, BSE, based in London, um, who basically is just saying, what, what can I do to help refugees? Because obviously there's, there's loads of people around and we come across people in our practice every day. So what, what things can they do practically? I would always say that it's every single person's responsibility. And then when you come with this type of question, what can I do? <laughs> there is a lot. There is a mm -hmm. lot. Uh, starting from as a, if you are um, a mental health nurse, um, it's all about awareness. It's all about starting from your workplace, uh, looking at if there is a, a form of diversity in terms of clients or patients. Uh, are, they, are their needs attended? what is happening. It's, it's always as well. For me, a nurse is not only about providing care, but it's also about challenging and trying to bring change within internal policies, for example. So wherever there is a gap, try and fight and then try and get uh, the right course because at the end of the day, we are looking at equality. Uh, apart from that, it's just there's lots of um, uh, health organization, community health organizations uh, within the third sectors, working closely with the NHS as well, where you can volunteer. Uh, and then I think you'll be learning a lot as well uh, through volunteering and working alongside this particular population. Mm, that's really good. And again, it's that idea about how we want to live in a community together, isn't it? It's coming round and round again. I'd uh, like to add, from... that the, the nursing trade unions are doing a lot of good work around um, the politics and campaigning around this at least on two levels. One is um, to get rid of charges in the NHS for for not non-UK citizens. Yeah. And, and another one is around the silly rules around not allowing people to work. And there's plenty of people who are nurses, doctors, engineers, and they could be making a great contribution to our society and we don't let them. And then there's the cap on new incoming people who could come and help solve our huge nursing workforce problem but they don't or they aren't going to earn the threshold at which you're entitled to get the the, the right of entry so there's no joined up policy on this but i think um nursing trade unions are one route into into, into some of this stuff and, and being active in those organizations is a good thing i think mm -hmm. uh, remind me, i will quickly add just one more thing talking about universities and back to the question or to anybody else starting promoting this diversity from the university in different ways, in a creative way, 
For example, did you know that next month is Black History Month? So we are talking about Black Lives Matters. We are talking about all those different things. How ourselves, as uh, part of the universities, as staff, as students, uh, how are we promoting this kind of uh, uh, equalities and diversity and this important point to show that we can live all together uh, without any stigma or whatever. So take initiatives uh, within uh, your university as well as students mm -hmm. and then try and find out what you can do to contribute as well. Brilliant, absolutely. Uh, another reminder there, the, the current issue of Asylum magazine, which is the radical magazine yeah. for mental health, is a Black Lives Matter special. And it's got yeah. some really interesting stuff there that, that is about this intersection, I think, between mental health asylum and asylum seeking a, as a refugee. So I, I'd encourage people to have a look at that magazine anyway, but, but just yeah. on topic uh, very much so. Yes. It's a really important read. We'll tweet it out in the timeline because if you haven't heard of it or you're, you're not engaged in, in, in reading it, it's really, really, really good read. Whether you, you know, wherever you're coming from on that sort of like mental health interest spectrum, it's a really cracking, cracking read, really useful, really. Um, and it also has a lot of creativity, which kind of links into Nikki Haley's question and something that links all you guys up together in terms of your way of working. So Nikki's saying, I'm in agreement, there's a need for more creativity in, th in therapy and mental health. Um, and she's thinking a lot about schools, which kind of fits into a lot of your work with younger people, um, saying um, creativity seems to be squashed by education. Um, and I wonder if any of you guys had any thoughts on that. Um, um, if I need to say something about creativity and education, um, I think I've been I've been using art-based um, art activities quite a lot for more than 10 years now. And I've always felt very, very comfortable working with young people, particularly it's so good in terms of uh, getting out most of their feelings and emotions. And uh, again, part of this study, uh, I've used um, my methodology was mainly around visual art-based narrative. And it was incredible, the number of data I collected that I couldn't even not transcribe everything. So I think creativity uh, is very important, especially when we talk about art, because art, willing it or not, is um, a universal language, I would say, where everybody will be kind of walking, sticking together. And uh, starting it with young people or children in schools uh, is, I think we need to kind of try to promote it more and more. Uh, it's less boring, really. You're on mute, Nikki. I'm on mute! <laughs> so I think absolutely. And I think was, was Charlotte or Steve going to come in on that as well. Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, I, I was just thinking then about how sometimes it, it, it's almost the fear of doing something different or doing something out of your comfort zone, which means it, uh, creativity doesn't always come into the classroom. Um, I know I, I'm one who like to, I, I always like to break the boundaries. So I have a session dedicated to National Poetry uh, Day every year. So it always falls on one of my modules. And we always have a session where we look at the creative use of language and poetry. And we have a go at writing some poetry that we can share with each other. There's also the use of kind of art therapies, but using it from a lower T rather than the, the more classical therapies of how art can be something that we can use from colouring in mancalas to being able to draw a picture and just what we get from just engaging in the moment and being, you know, doing something in, in, at that time, which is fun and interesting. So I think it's trying to get rid of this idea that it's something we shouldn't do and we should focus on the traditional education and actually try something new. Yeah. Um, I, I, the best commentator on education in the world ever is a fellow called Paolo Freire. Mm. And his, the, the, the absolute essence of his, his set of theories is that human beings are innately creative and we need to back that. And a lot of what passes for teaching disrespects that and tells people what they need to know. So the best education experience is one that allows people to, to be themselves and to be active in the education process. And the best learning I've ever been involved in is creative or Freirean mm. sort of approaches. But I think you're all right. We, we could do more of that. And a lot of our campuses, we have these people that, that are, what they're about is teaching us stuff. We have the facilities like theatres mm. and exhibition spaces and everything. And when we use them, it's brilliant, but we don't necessarily 
all the time. And heaven forbid we mix those students up. But you've done that in your festival, which, which is fantastic. But maybe we could do it throughout the curriculum mm. as well. Yeah, and you could embed creative arts in your curriculum. So we've just devised our nursing programme and a lot of our mental health modules around, you know, like patient narratives and getting students to write about that. Um, and then our third year module is, um, without giving too much weight, it's, it's some project work, actually getting the students to go out and build mentally healthy communities. So it's embedded in our nursing programme as well. Yeah. Not We don't just, you know, it's not this festival idea isn't just something external. It's something that, you know, we... Mm. It's intrinsic to me and Steve. Mm. And, and mm. I think there's a lot of pressure on people that if I create art, it's got to be really, really good. You know, we've had programs like X Factor. Well, to be really good on there, you've got to sing like perfection, you know, and it's not about that. It's the process that matters. Mm. It's doing it and getting some enjoyment out of actually doing art or, mm. or, or whatever that's performance, dance, whatever creative means that that looks like. It's the it's the process itself mm-hmm. that's, that attributes to good, healthy well-being. We're coming to the close, and I want to go around and ask people, um, you know, for closing remarks. I'm tempted to ask the question, what, what's the X factor? But, but, <laughs> um, so can it come to you, Lai? How would you like to, to close? What closing remarks would you like to make? I think mine, you know, you've got to take the, the research I did is a very small exploratory. Nevertheless, I think with the, the result and the conclusion, I think I would like to do more um, work on newly qualified um, teaching staff going into higher education because, you know, people hit the ground running and or are they getting to help them with their balancing their work and um, home life and how they cope with work-related stress? Because that's important, isn't it? I mean, over the years, we all develop different ways of coping. This is where the, the attributes are coming through, isn't it? But we would, I would like to think that um, we can help the new the newbie coming in. So That's fantastic, right? So, so where we're going to go with this is is envisaging new ways of organising our work that that are more compassionate and la- allow us to take care of people better, and maybe have better educational outcomes in in our settings. So, can I turn to, to Peggy next? What what would you like to be your closing remark, Peggy? Um, I would say that um, in the last fifteen years, I've been working closely with this particular group of people. And I've seen so many gaps in terms of health that needed to be attended. I think this is one of the motivations for me to do even my PhD for conducting research. I know that I cannot do everything because, but I've just witnessed so much that just based on this particular study, it opened doors at the end to different areas that I can continue in terms of research. So that means the need is out there, and um, I, I'll just continue to keep working and doing as many research as I can, hoping to work in partnership as well with other researchers working in that particular area. Yeah. So what I like about your research, Peggy, and, and Lies, is is it's it's not just research for the sake of finding stuff out; it's research for the sake of. And the research is the sake of uh, changing policies, is the, uh, in the sake of uh, making justice, in the sake of me feeling comfortable with what I'm doing and feeling that I've contributed at some point, uh, bringing something uh, uh, for, for this particular community, having a voice, an academic voice for them. <laughs> and an activist voice. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. An activist voice, yeah. Thank you. So, so I want to turn to Steve and Charlotte, and, and your challenge is to say exactly the same closing remark together. <laughs> I'm only joking, each in turn. So come to you, Charlotte. Yeah, just building on what Peggy was saying, exactly what I was going to say. I think the creative arts gives people a voice um, and it and it helps express that compassion that we have, um, that humanitarian, you know, closeness that we have for one another so even in these highly strong political times when I don't know about you but I feel like my voice is always dampened down I feel like even if you can't use your vocal cords to speak up there's there's creative means there somewhere of of getting your voice out there so don't be afraid to to have that voice and and fight for what you think is right fantastic and you've got the very very last word Steve uh, well, I, I suppose what I would hope is uh, the festival itself is something that is going to continue. It's been going two years. It, it feels more like a brand now and it's got a, a really good formula that works. So it's trying to get that 
idea out to other areas as well. So it was great to hear that other people are interested in other universities because I think mm -hmm. it's something that everyone can buy into. It's simple. You don't have to put a lot of uh, time into it, but a lot of effort perhaps on the days and that, but it is well worth it in the end. And the feedback is it's so rewarding when you hear how people have been able to engage with it and feel good. So, so it, I think, you know, for me, we, we've had some, some great chats here and, it, and it's taken us to a place that, that celebrates, you know, human beings, common humanity, humanitarianism, social justice, and what Steve said at the end there, if you've got a good idea, let's share it and not just keep it in one place. So that's mm. fantastic. So thanks to everybody and thanks to everyone who's been listening. I think it's been a great show. Yeah, absolutely. And just before we go, I've got a message from Dave behind the cameras. Hello, Dave. And also, um, hello to Vanessa as well, who's also tweeting tonight. Um, just tomorrow, to remind you guys about tomorrow's MHTV, 7pm start, and it's a healthcare chaplain called Yasmin Hamid from Hertfordshire we're going to be talking to about mental health issues generally. And then the next day, we're back on to the last session of the conference, which is going to be really exciting as well. So thank you so much, everybody, for tonight. It's another night that's made me really proud to be a mental health nurse. Mm. I just feel thrilled to bits today. So thank you very much, all you guys. Um, and it just remains to say good night. So good night. Good night, good night everyone. Good night.